Holy King of righteousness, You are mighty to save. And we look to You, Jesus, as the One who not only brought the offer, the opportunity of salvation into the world, but is coming back in again to to rest all things under Your authority and Your power and Your glory and Your greatness. And so we bow humbly before You, thanking You that, that You have made us worthy to worship You. That You have made us worthy to wear Your name. That You by Your blood and Your righteousness have made us righteous before You. It is astounding to me because I know how unrighteous I tend to be. But thank You, thank You Jesus for Your grace that makes me more than I am. Thank You for the love and the, and the compassion that draws me, Father, draws me into ministry, draws me into to serving You, not as a have to, but as a get to, Lord. I pray tonight that as we study and consider Your Word, especially as we come toward the epic conclusion of Isaiah, not quite there tonight yet, Father, but as we draw near, that that we recognize that we are drawing near to the epic conclusion of this age. As Paul and John and Peter and the apostles spoke and wrote so long ago, these are the last days. And if they were the last days for Paul... Lord Jesus, we recognize we're in the last of the last of the last days. And so at this time in the earth's history, we come before you fearfully but not afraid. We come before you humbly but lifted up as your people, calling out the name of Jesus and simply asking you to continue to build up your church in this world that we might, Lord, be used by you for the sake of your kingdom. Holy Spirit, tonight teach us your word. For Father, it is Your Word and not ours. We seek to hear what You have to say to us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Just because you're a prophet doesn't mean you're omniscient. And that can be confused sometimes. We can look back at the Hebrew prophets of the Older Testament and we can see what marvelous and amazing men they were and the relationships that they had with God the Father. And the things that they saw, the visions they described are are absolutely amazing. And so sometimes we can look at them and begin to think more highly of them than really we ought. Because they were just people like you and like me. And there is something in us, we've talked recently about this, there's something in us that wants to worship. And we get off track when that worship gets directed toward a man or a woman. Because we are created to worship, and there's only one, you know, that we were created to worship, and that's God the Father. But if we're not worshiping Him, we can slide into worship of others. And that can happen with the prophets, because they are so amazing. But they are not omniscient. They are not all-knowing. They don't have it all down. When we look at at men like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, even John, that close friend of Jesus, in seeing the revelation, they did not always understand what they were saying. They were often curious about what they were hearing, confused by what they were seeing, even upset by visions. Daniel spends three weeks on his couch. He is so worn out by the vision that God allows him to see. It literally freaks him out. And so these prophets were just men who didn't always know, some women even, who didn't always know why they had to speak what they had to speak. And I wonder about that sometimes. Can you imagine being Isaiah and saying something God told you to say, and someone asked for an explanation, and you have to say, I don't have any idea. 
He just said, say it, so I'm saying it. I don't know what it means. And Peter tells us, 1 Peter 1, around verse 20, says, you know, the prophets searched carefully. They looked, they, they were curious about this salvation God was going to bring. About this Messiah character, this Mashiach in the Hebrew. They wondered about these things. They really inquired, inquiring minds. You know, the prophets had these. And Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, what the prophets did know. And that is this, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Isaiah did not come up with the book of Isaiah. He didn't think this up, he didn't dream it up any more than John dreamed up Revelation. They wrote what they were told to write. They shared what the Lord had shown them. With or without understanding. And as we open up Isaiah 63 tonight, understand we find the prophet puzzled by a most unsettling vision. Unsettling at first, upsetting pretty quickly as he sees what he is about to see before us. It's a vision that moves him from perplexity to absolute and intense pathos. Verse 1, Isaiah 63, he writes, Who is this who comes from Edom? with garments of glowing colors from Basra, this one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. Isaiah asks two questions right at the beginning. He has this vision. He's seeing something amazing here. And the first question he asks is, who is this? It's a good question, Isaiah. And the one he sees answers him directly. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Righteous, mighty to save. Isaiah can only know of one possible person for this, and that's the Lord. But we recognize even further, it is the Lord Jesus that Isaiah is seeing. This one who's righteous, who is mighty to save. Isaiah 43, verse 11, Isaiah wrote that God says, I, even I am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. Isaiah 45, verse 21. There is no God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. But you know that the angel Gabriel sent by God came to the shepherds and said in Luke 2.11, Today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Christ the Lord. Okay, The anointed one, in Hebrew that would be Mashiach Adonai. Or perhaps Mashiach Yahweh. Christ the Lord, the one and only Savior, the same Savior from Isaiah, is born unto you this day. Titus 2.13 tells us that we are to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the very Savior Isaiah sees. He sees Him in this vision. So we know, we understand right from the beginning, Isaiah sees this one coming from Edom, coming from Basra. Who is it? It's Jesus It's Messiah. It's the Lord. And He is mighty to save, as we sang earlier. He comes mighty to save. He comes in righteousness. So Isaiah is caught up, intrigued by this, and he asks the next question, what's he got on his clothes? What's on your clothes, Lord? And to help answer that, there's a third question that Isaiah answers for us. Question number three would be, where is he coming from? So think in terms of that. He's asking, who is this? What's he got on his clothes? Where's he coming from? 
As I said, inquiring minds want to know. Verse 2 goes on and says, Why is your apparel red? And your garments like the one who treads in the winepress. Why, Lord? I want you to think about where he's coming from before we go any further. Isaiah asks the question. He, he sees. Here's one coming from Edom. Coming from Edom. We talked about this back in Isaiah 35. That Edom was one of three nations on the other side of the Jordan River. Ammon, Moab, and Edom. That all three together make up the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan today. That modern nation of Jordan is Edom in the south, Moab in the middle, and Ammon in the second, which is why the capital is Ammon, Jordan. When our tour group returned from Israel this last spring, I think I told you our Jordanian tour guide said, you know, there's no such thing as a Jordanian. You know, they understood after the world war that this was made up. You know, it was just a country kind of transjordan. You know, as Britain and France are carving up the Middle East and they carved out Transjordan and they gave this to the group who lived in that area. But our tour guide said, no, no, there are no Jordanians, only Edomites, Moabites, and Ammonites. So they even like to draw back to that and to claim that connection. Are they truly? I don't know. But like they like to claim that connection to the land of those three areas. But you know the thing that impressed me and many of our group the most as we drove up the King's Highway from southern Jordan all the way up to the north? as we went literally through Edom and Moab and Ammon. What impressed me the most about Eden was its desolation. Absolutely desolate. Back in Isaiah, I said 34, it was Isaiah 30, or I said 35, it's 34. Edom was a cursed land. We studied that, lo those many months ago. Isaiah 34, verse 5, the Lord said, For my sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom, and upon the people whom I have devoted to destruction. And now Isaiah sees the Lord coming from Edom, coming from destruction. Multiple prophets confirm the curse upon Edom. The entire subject matter of the prophet Obadiah a one-chapter prophecy that we'll do in one night when we get there, in the prophecy of Obadiah. It's a prophecy of the curse of Edom. That's what the prophet is told to tell about. But back to the question that helps explain the stains on the garment of this righteous Savior. Question number three was, where is this Savior coming from? The answer is Edom. Bible students, who is Edom? Esau. Esau. Right on. Esau. What does Esau, or actually Edom, mean? Red. It means red. Why is Esau named Edom? Why do they call Esau red? Genesis 25.30, Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. <laughs> Therefore his name was called Edom. Because he wanted his stew and Edom too. <laughs> doesn't work really very well. Sorry. But it's more specific. So Edom means red and Esau becomes called Big Red. In fact, Esau was a, a, ready guy, a ruddy guy. You know, very hairy. You know, hunter guy. Red haired, like red stew, so let's call him Edom. It just eat him up. <laughs> okay. But it's more specific than Edom. I'm sorry, we'll let that go. He's not just coming from Edom, this one that Isaiah sees coming. He's coming from Basra. Basra, a city that is in Jordan today. In fact, the modern day city is Busira. Busira in Edom is Basra. Basra comes from the name Bazir, which means a vintage. 
As in wine. So he's coming from the land of red, from vintage city, looking like one who tread grapes in the wine press. Interesting. Isaiah sees him coming and says, what is this all over your clothes? And you and I know these are no grape juice stains. Jesus answers, Isaiah verse 3, I have trodden the wine trough alone. And from the peoples, no, there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. And their life blood is sprinkled on my garments and I stained all my raiment. This is actually more graphic than the translation even reads. The Hebrew translation is more literally their life sap is spurted on my garments. Spurted blood all over me. That's what Jesus, the Lord, the mighty one to save, coming from Edom, coming from Basra, Isaiah sees him and he is spattered, splattered with blood. And I haven't seen that painting represented in homes next to the one with the good shepherd, you know. <laughs> Jesus coming spat. I mean, but I want you to understand something, and I don't want you to miss this. As he describes that he trod the wine trough, notice two ways. First, in the top of verse 3, he trod the wine trough alone. Then a couple lines down, he says, I also, also... In addition to trotting it alone, I trod them in my anger. What's he talking about? I trod the wine press alone. The first coming of Christ, the crucifixion. Down in verse 5, he even says, I looked and there was no one to help, and I was astonished and there was no one to uphold. He was absolutely, abjectly alone at the cross. He trod the wine press alone, and he spilled his blood. But, that's the first coming. In the second coming of Jesus, their lifeblood, I trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments. That's the second coming as Jesus returns as a warrior king coming to the last battle. Revelation 14, verse 20 says, The winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came up from the winepress to the horses' bridles for a distance, check this out, of 200 miles. 200 miles of bridle deep blood. Now people say that's impossible. Well, not so much. If you've got horses riding through this area, this valley, this 200 mile section of the Mideast that I'll describe to you in a moment, horses riding to and fro, battle taking place as there is blood spilled and blood on the ground and blood is spattering, obviously the blood could get up to the horse's bridles. You don't have to be wading through it. Bridal high, the blood is spattering everywhere. It is an absolutely bloody mess. By the way, it's interesting, Revelation 14 says the winepress was trodden outside the city. Well, Jesus was crucified outside the city, wasn't He? That's where the sacrifice took place. And so He was crucified outside the city, and so also the battle of Megiddo, which is described in Revelation 14, happens outside the city of Jerusalem. It happens in this swath of 200 miles. Busira in Edom, or in Jordan today, Busira is 200 miles from Megiddo in Israel. He's coming from Basra, Busira. He is headed toward Megiddo. And that battle taking place. And Isaiah sees this. And it's a remarkable, remarkable vision. John saw it too, Revelation 19, verse 13. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. 
Revelation 19.15 says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And we talked about this on Sunday, the day of God's vengeance. But there has to be a day of God's vengeance. Or the love is not complete. Because love is both compassionate and it is just. Love demands justice, as we shared. And so that day is coming. And note this, I believe that Isaiah's vision gives us a pattern of Jesus' return. Phase one is Basra. Sets foot or steps down there in Basra, beginning there, fulfilling the ancient curse to its completion in the land that was once Edom. Phase two from Basra, as Isaiah sees him coming, he comes up to Megiddo. That valley, it's called the Jordan Rift Valley. The Jordan Rift Valley, or the Jezreel Valley, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, it begins up in the midsection of Israel. It runs all the way down through Jerusalem, the eastern side of Jerusalem. It becomes known as the Kidron Valley. And then from there spills on out to the south, heading toward the Dead Sea and across to Basra. And from there, that Rift Valley actually continues all the way down ultimately to the southern tip of Israel, the Gulf of Aqaba, that arm of the Red Sea. And it's that 200-mile distance that concerns us, because that is where I believe the Battle of Armageddon will take place. So Jesus comes to Basra. He heads then on over through the Kadron Valley, through southern Israel, across from the land of Egypt. He comes up all the way to Megiddo in a 200-mile bloodbath. Rick, you're kind of overstating the blood. Well, just give me, I'm just warming up. Step three, he comes to the Mount of Olives. Zechariah chapter 14 verse 4 tells us that he actually sets foot on the Mount of Olives. It splits in the middle. And when that happens, well, the king is back. The people will be saved because this righteous one comes and he is mighty to save. What Isaiah saw was what Zechariah saw, which is what John saw, and that is Jesus Christ speaking in righteousness, mighty to save, His raiment spattered and splattered with blood. Why so much blood? Because I think the Lord would help us understand or have us know that there is nothing more deadly than sin. And so He chose this substance. Think about it. Why did God create blood in the first place? Why blood? I mean, he could have done it. He could have created us to be filled with and to live on air. You know, we could just have air running through our veins. And you go to get an air test, you know? Kind of like you're testing your tire. You just stick that in your arm. Oh, I'm okay. I need a little more air here. That's not what he did. He chose in his, in his creativity, just amazing creativity when you think about how God just made man. He chose this thick red substance to course through our veins. And why? He says in Leviticus 17, verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. The Hebrew writer comes along in Hebrews 9.22 says almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. God chose blood, that very essence that keeps us alive, to show us how deadly sin is. Sin causes the life blood to have to be poured out on the altar. 
And so for literally a thousand and a half years, Israel would sacrifice animal after animal after animal on the altar, and it would be a bloodbath. You know, the days of, of Yom Kippur, the days of sacrifice, it wasn't pretty. They say that the blood flowed ankle deep in the temple courts. That it was a, a nasty, bloody thing. But God did this graphic thing for all those many years to lead His people, and you and I, by extension, up to Mount Moriah and Calvary and the crucifixion of Jesus who would pour out all of His lifeblood for our sins. It is so absolutely serious. Sin is nothing to laugh at. It causes the losing of blood. In 1937, at the age of 35, Peter Marshall, some of you have heard of Peter Marshall, he came from Scotland to pastor the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church. On his first Sunday, he was greeted by a rather dignified and intimidating older woman who said, Pastor Marshall, I hope that you won't talk too much about the blood as our previous pastor did. He replied, Madam, I promise you, I won't talk too much about the blood. She seemed relieved until he added, because it is impossible to talk too much about the blood. (laughs) I couldn't agree more. It is a bloody thing. And when people say, you Christians, you're, you're so into this blood stuff, you know. And here at the bridge, we actually take communion every Sunday. And remember the blood of Jesus. Oh, the blood of Jesus. That washes white as snow. That's why we sing about the blood. That's why we take communion. That's why we think about and ponder the pouring out of His blood at Calvary. Not because we enjoy the graphic nature of it. But we need to understand how serious it truly is. In verse 4, He says, For the day of my vengeance was in my heart. And my year of redemption has come. I looked and there was no one to help. And I was astonished. And there was no one to uphold. And so my own arm brought salvation to me. And my wrath upheld me. There's a curious thought. Bible students, ponder this. Was there an amount of wrath that held Jesus onto the cross as well? In fact, we know that God's wrath held Jesus onto the cross, God's wrath represented in the nails that pierced through Him and held Him there and caused Jesus to have to go through in that awful situation to bear the full brunt of the wrath of God. My own wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger. Now we've just fast-forwarded to the second coming and made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. It's the day of the vengeance of our God as we talked about Sunday. Same day as in Isaiah 61, the latter half of verse 2. But note this. Listen. So cool. First, before the day of the vengeance of our God, what came first? The favorable year of the Lord. Right. The favorable year of the Lord and the day of my vengeance. A year of grace and one day of wrath. Notice what follows it. In verse 4 again it says, For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption has come. You know what I call that? Grace sandwich. (laughs) You just saw a grace sandwich. And we need to understand this is the natural inclination of God's grace. This is God's nature. This is what He intends for us. For you and for me. 
Grace sandwich. The year of my favor, a paper-thin slice of wrath, and the year of my redemption. Grace sandwich. It's more about the bread than it is the meat. With the current diet I'm on, I'm really missing the bread. (laughs) So this is God's inclination. How would you respond to such a thing? Put yourself in Isaiah's robe for a moment. Stand there looking at this vision, seeing the Savior come, Mashiach, the Lord coming, spattered with blood, and He declares His wrath, and He declares that He has just come from Basra and Eden, and He has already begun the bloodbath as He makes His way toward Megiddo, and you see this, and it is a horrifying, terrifying sight. How do you respond? What do you say? What do you do with this? The reality of God's wrath obviously sits very heavy on Isaiah. He saw what John would. Jesus' awesome coming, Revelation 19. And so for the rest of chapter 63 and all of chapter 64, Isaiah responds with repentance and a plea for mercy. Verse 7. I shall make mention of the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all the Lord has granted us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel which He granted them according to His compassion and according to the abundance of His loving kindness. This is, if it wasn't so serious, it might be comical. Think about this now. Read it in context. What Isaiah just saw. This horrifying picture of this warrior king. And what does he immediately say? I want to talk about grace. I want to talk about your loving kindness. I want to praise you for your goodness and your compassion and your loving kindness. Again, he says loving kindness twice. Chesed in the Hebrew. The Hebrew word for grace. This is where Isaiah, he's just so worked up by what he's seen. In verse 8 he says, "For, For he said, surely they are my people, sons, who will not deal falsely, and so he became their Savior. He's trying to remind God, you came the Savior, you're the Savior. What is it he's exactly saying here in verse 8? Surely they are my people, sons who will not deal falsely, so he became their Savior. Well, we know that they did deal falsely. Was God wrong? When God looked at Israel and says, oh, they're they're my kids. My kids wouldn't do that. How many of your parents have ever said that? (laughs) My kid wouldn't do that. Everybody else's kids are messed up, not mine. And Isaiah now is kind of putting these words in God's mouth. Lord, you looked at Israel and you said, surely we wouldn't deal falsely. What he's saying, in essence, is that God had every right, listen, He had every right to expect gratitude and appreciation from the people of Israel. And He got none of it. He had the right to, based on His grace, based on what He did, absolutely He should be able to expect gratitude instead of grumbling. Appreciation rather than rebellion. Because gratitude is always the right response to the grace of the Lord. Which is why you've heard me say before, if you respond to God's grace with an attitude of legalism, you don't understand grace. If you respond to God's grace with abject gratitude, thanksgiving, praise, you're getting grace. You're understanding what it's all about. It should just bring us to the height of our song. To shouts of joy, I have the grace of God. And by the way, gratitude following grace precedes more glory for God. That's kind of the pattern. Grace, gratitude, glory. The three G's, you put them all together. The three G's of loving God, grace, gratitude, glory. 
Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.15, For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. There it is, 3G. Grace, gratitude, glory. Sadly, gratitude, though it's the right response, isn't always the actual response. And I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But verse 9 going on says, amazingly, in all their affliction, speaking of Israel, in all of their affliction, He was afflicted. Which, I could say that to parents too. When your kids mess up, doesn't it mess you up? Doesn't it hurt when your kids are hurt? In all their affliction, He was afflicted. And, note this, the angel of His presence saved them. In His love and in His mercy, He redeemed them. And He lifted them and carried them all the days of old. Wait, an angel saved them? The angel of His presence now is... I thought God was the only Savior represented in Jesus when Jesus came. The the physical representation, the exact representation, the Hebrew writer tells us, of God the Father... But now there's an angel? What's it like a savior angel? What's the deal here? The Hebrew is Malach Panav. Malach Panav means, as it's translated, the angel of his presence. It also means literally the messenger of his face. Or the messenger of his person. Malach in the Hebrew simply means the messenger. And isn't necessarily tied to angels. It's any messenger that comes... Representing God. Well, Jesus comes representing God. Jesus is, I believe, the Malach Panah that's being referred to here. The angel of His presence saved them. And we have the benefit of history. We can look back and go, yeah, the angel of His presence did save them, didn't He? The messenger of His face. Jesus, who represents. Jesus, who explains God. Isaiah is referring referring to that word we've used before, Christophanes. There are many... Christophanes in the Hebrew Scripture. That is an Old Testament appearance of the person of Jesus. We've seen many of those. You know, comes to Abraham, comes to Gideon, shows up in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember as Nebuchadnezzar is looking into the furnace and says, wait a minute, how many guys did we throw in there? Well, three. Well, I see four. And the fourth one is like the Son of God, says Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan. How did he know? It's obviously a little inspired in that moment. I would be inspired too if I saw four guys walking around in a furnace. Hey, what's going on? How you doing? You know? By the way, rabbis, especially between the time of Isaiah and Jesus in that 700 years, the rabbis believed and attached this name, Malach Panav, to Messiah. They believed and taught that Malach Panav was the Messiah, the angel of his presence, the messenger of his face. And so in verse 10 it goes on and says, But they rebelled. Remember, Isaiah is pouring out here. But they rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit. Therefore He turned Himself to become their enemy and fought against them. Then His people remembered the days of old of Moses. Where is He who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of His flock? Where is He who put His Holy Spirit in the midst of them? Who caused His glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses? who divided the waters before them to make for Himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like the horse in the wilderness, and they did not stumble. As the cattle which go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. 
So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Three times Isaiah here mentions the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. Ruach HaKodesh is Holy Spirit in the Hebrew. And he says three different things about the Holy Spirit of the living God. In verse 10, he tells us the people grieved him. In other words, the Holy Spirit was grieved. And that word grieved, and I suddenly realize I'm throwing a lot of Hebrew words at you. Just know what they mean. The word grieved there in verse 10 is yitzvu. And it means to cause sharp or cutting pain. The people cause sharp pain to the Spirit of God. Their rebellion cut like a knife. The very Spirit of God. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We're told in verse 11 that the Holy Spirit resided in the midst of them. So He can be grieved. He obviously can be present. He resided there in the midst of them, verse 11, and that's where He likes to be. Brothers and sisters, that's where the Holy Spirit wants to be in your life, in the midst of you. Not off to the side, not kept at arm's length, not left in the church building, or in this case barn, until a further time. He loves to be in the midst of His people. And Jesus made a way for that to happen for us as followers of Him. He said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm never going to leave you alone. I'm going to come and abide in you and with you. John 14, 16. I'll ask the Father and He'll give you another helper that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. He abided in their midst. He was in the middle of the camp of Israel, there in the tabernacle. And then ultimately in the land, He was in their midst, the presence of God, the Spirit of God, there at the temple in Jerusalem in the midst of the land. But the people had to leave the temple and go back to their homes. That's why seven times a year God said, I want you to come back to Jerusalem and worship. Because I want you to be where I am. And marvelously, in our lives today, when we leave here and go home, the Spirit doesn't stay here. He goes with us. In our midst, residing there. We're also told in verse 14 about the Holy Spirit that He, the Ruach HaKodesh, the Spirit of the Lord, He gave them rest and He led them And that's just what He does. The Comforter who comes alongside, who gives you rest when you're weary, and who guides you. Part of the way that we know that we get rest from the Lord is that He's the one driving. Cheryl and I on Sunday night, uh, after the picnic, after it had been a pretty long day, and Cheryl was hoping to get home and and get a quick nap because we had to head out to Cedro Woolley and buy chickens. I won't even tell you what that was all about, but we had to go buy some chickens. I've never bought chickens in my life. I grew up in Southern California. You don't buy chickens, you go to KFC. <laughs> up here, I guess you buy chickens. So we went to buy chickens, but she wanted to get a nap. She was exhausted. And I told her, "Hun, I'm driving. You know? I need a nap. <laughs> you, just, you can sleep as we go. That's the idea. Holy Spirit says, you know what? Sometimes you're weary. Sometimes you're tired. You sit and rest. I'll drive. You stop striving over your life. Let me guide. And that's so easy to say, but as your pastor, I can tell you, and Les can confirm this, there are lots of times where I'm just not letting the Lord guide. And Les had to remind me last week, you know, I think you and Cheryl, about a particular 
thing. I think the two of you just need to sit and pray together and ask the Lord what His plan is. And I'm like, duh. <laughs> I'm striving. I'm trying to I'm grabbing the wheel. Lord, let me drive you. Know? <laughs> and he says, hey, I'll lead. And I will give you rest. Isaiah cracks open this window here to the past. And it's amazing. He allows us to see just how actively involved the Spirit of the Lord really was with Israel. Really desired to be with the people. They grieved Him. But he resided among them. And He gave them rest. And He led them. And to what end? Notice the last line of verse 14. Why? To make for yourself a glorious name. That was point three on Sunday morning. It's all about the glory of God. And last Wednesday night, we talked about it again. I believe the Wednesday before that, that all that He has done is for His glory. Even our salvation is not for our salvation. It's for His glory. And we've got to deal with something here because there are people who hear that. It sounds real good in, in, a, in a church setting. you know. It's all for the glory of God. Yes, Lord. Amen. But I've had people honestly and a bit defiantly say, God is so into His own glory. What is the deal? Why does he? Why is it all about his glory? You know, if I said, "Hey, this church is all about the glory of Rick," well, first of all, no one would come. <laughs> but secondly, wouldn't that be egomaniacal? Wouldn't that just be arrogant? And yet, God can say that. No, I've been asked that question, and recently, by a rather defiant guy. <laughs> Here's the thing, and I really gave this some thought, and I, I think the Lord at least gave me some understanding about this this week, and that is we've got to understand what God's glory really means. What does it mean? Why is He allowed to say, it's all for my glory, it's to make for Himself a glorious name? Here's the deal. God's glory is who He is. And this is something we don't understand because we are not glorious by nature. You know, we're actually rather human by nature. So we could say, if this was talking about me, to make for yourself a human name. And you go, okay, yeah, he's a human. One human among many. God, His nature is glory. Okay, it's who He is. Birds, they fly. It's what they do. Fish, they swim. Humans do human things. God is glory. And if we get that, if we begin to understand perhaps a little more about this, that God is glory, that means to glorify God is simply to see Him and to declare who He is. How do you praise God? Do you just say, praise God? Well, look at how Isaiah just praised God. Back in verse 7, I shall make mention of the loving kindness of the Lord. He just praised Him. He's describing His nature. He says, the great goodness toward the house of Israel. His compassion. His loving kindnesses. He says in verse 9 at the end of the verse, in His love and in His mercy, He redeemed them. Isaiah uses here four nouns and throws in the verb love that are the character, the nature of God who is glory in and of Himself. And listen to those words again. Loving kindness, goodness, compassion, mercy, and love. Does that sound egotistical? (laughs) No. Not hardly. If that is God's nature, as His Word describes to us, and as many of us have experienced, that is the nature of God, He is as far from egomaniacal as you can get. But the truth is, He is glory. So what else are we going to do but glorify Him? Because that is His very nature. The weight of His glory. In fact, the Hebrew word for glory, kabod, means heavy. 
weighty, substantive. And so when you say the glory of God, you're saying the substance of God, the weight of God. It is who He is. And the reason we need to understand that is this. You cannot really get to know God without glorifying Him. It is in glorifying God that you know Him better. You understand Him more. It is as you call out these attributes of God the Father, of Jesus the Son, of His Holy Spirit, that you begin to say, I know God. That you can honestly say, yeah, I know Jesus. What do you know about Jesus? He's loving. What else do you know? He's gracious. Tell me, tell me more. He's just. Absolutely fair. He cares about me. Oh, He is glorious. By the way, it's always been a chief function of the Holy Spirit. We've seen three mentions of the Holy Spirit here. It's always been the chief function of the Holy Spirit to bring glory to Jesus. And you know the Holy Spirit is present in a place where Jesus is being glorified. Where the name of Jesus is lifted up and Jesus is honored, you can say, the Holy Spirit's there because that's what He does. Jesus tells us in John 16, 13, when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He'll guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come, and He will glorify Me. For He will take of Mine and will disclose it to you. What does that mean? He will take of My nature and explain it to you. He will help you understand that I am truly, Jesus speaking, glorious. Spirit does not elevate man. He glorifies the man, Christ Jesus. And Jesus glorifies God because He reveals God. So do we understand maybe a little better about why God is allowed to say that my name might be glorified? It's that my name might be known. And you might understand me for who I am. Now as Isaiah glorifies God, he becomes intensely personal. Verse 15, Look down from heaven and see your holy and glorious habitation. See from your holy and glorious habitation. Where are your zeal and your mighty deeds? The stirrings of your heart and your compassion are restrained toward who? Me. Not toward Israel. He's been talking about Israel, God's love for, His compassion for, His loving kindness to Israel. Suddenly now He says, but all this love, all this compassion is restrained from me. Isaiah is an amazing prophet. He's walking a very fine line here, by the way, too. The fine line of accusation and blame. Where are you, Lord? Where's the stirring of your heart? Where's your zeal? How come your compassion is restrained from me, he says, and he is speaking as a Jew himself. This prophet is on an absolutely level plane with his people, and he's taking this all very personally, just like Daniel would. Daniel chapter 9, open it up, he's reading about the scroll, out of the scroll of Jeremiah, and, and he gets pierced to the heart, and he falls to his knees, and he begins to repent. Daniel! Daniel, who's the only one in Scripture other than Jesus that we see no sin in him, I'm sure he did, but we don't see it. It's not mentioned. And he falls down repenting. Why? Because he was a Jew. Because he loved his people and completely identified with them. Same with Isaiah. He didn't walk on a cloud. He didn't see himself as the great prophet. He saw himself as an Israelite like any other. A Jewish man like any other who loved the Lord and who missed the Lord even as Israel was missing God. In all of Isaiah's writings, this this section here from about 15 through 19, the end of chapter uh, 63, 
This is the depth of his pleading. There is nowhere else where he pleads with this kind of intensity and pathos and passion. He says in verse 16, For you are our Father. Though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not recognize us, you, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from of old is your name. You know, there are people who take that verse and say, See, that's the church. Abraham does not know us and Israel does not recognize us. Oh Lord, You are our Father and we replace Israel. Thanks for playing. The answer here, what he is saying is, Abraham, our own patriarch. Israel, Jacob, our own patriarch. They don't even know us. They're dead. They're buried. What does Abraham know about Israel today? But You, Lord, are our Father. You, Lord, are our Redeemer. He couldn't even bank. He wouldn't bank on the patriarchs. Now, some Jews do, even today. Jews in Jesus' time did. John chapter 8, they they called out, Abraham is our father! Jesus said, really? (laughs) Abraham was your father, and you'd know who I am. In that same passage where Jesus says in John 8, 58, before Abraham was born, I am. And they lost it. <laughs> Started picking up stones to stone him. They couldn't take the truth. Well, Jesus, Jesus comes along and says, I'm the deal. Isaiah got that. Isaiah understood it's not Abraham, it's not Jacob, it's not Isaac, it's not the forefathers, it's not Moses, it's not Joshua. We want to put we don't put our trust in them. We put our trust in our the Hebrew word Abba. Abba. He says it twice. It's, it's interesting because there, there is a, a more elongated Hebrew word that's a little more serious. You know, Father. You know, with an English accent, you have to say it seriously that way. Father. But there is also Daddy. Abba. The name that you hear little children in the streets of Jerusalem calling out to their dads is a wonderful sound to be literally in the old city of Jerusalem and hear little Jewish kids calling out Abba, Abba. And they are calling their daddy. And that's the word Isaiah uses when he says, You are our Abba. You, O Lord, are our Abba. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. Who do you call Father? Who do you call Father in this world? Jesus said, Matthew 23.9, Do not call anyone on earth your Father, for one is your Father, He who is in heaven. And do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. That's why, by the way, our elders are not called elders. We chose to use the term shepherds, because it's a dirtier, more servant level name. It kind of keeps our heads in the right place, you know? Don't call anyone your leader. Don't call anyone father. You know, there are cultures that do that. We, we know this in the Philippines, and it's interesting to me that uh, they will refer to Harvin as father. And, and it's, it's very much a cultural thing. It's also a very Catholic thing because that's very strong in the Philippines. But Jesus said, don't do it. Don't elevate another man. There's only one Abba. And He is your heavenly Father. And we need to understand that because our earthly dads let us down. Being an earthly dad, I let my children down. Our earthly leaders let us down. They will not remember you. Abraham, Israel, they don't remember us, says Isaiah. But our Abba, He will not forget us. 
Galatians 4, verse 6, Paul said, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, that is to sin, but you are a son, and if a son, then an heir through God, Abba. Verse 17, Why, O Lord, do you cause us to stray from your ways and harden our heart? From fearing you, return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Again, he's walking this line. Isaiah, are you confessing here? Or are you assigning blame to God? As he says, why do you cause us to stray? Why do you do this to us? Which one is Isaiah doing? Neither one, gang. He is just feeling. <laughs> Isaiah is emoting. He's lamenting here. This is a prophet in pain. He looks around, he sees the hardness of the heart of his fellow Judeans. He recognizes the desperation of their situation, even a hundred years before Babylon would wipe them out. And Isaiah is expressing a grave and very human concern that God's punishment in Israel might be causing the people to harden. And that's a fine line. I've talked to your parents a few times tonight. It's a fine line as a parent to know when your punishment, when your discipline is hardening your child rather than softening the heart. And sometimes we as parents go too far and we harden our kids' hearts and we push them from us. And sometimes we're too lenient and, and too soft and, and they get away with murder. And we don't know. You know. The only manual I found is sitting right here in front of me to try and learn how to parent correctly. But Isaiah's concerned. God, your punishment is causing the people to harden now. Why are you doing this? Why are you pushing us away? And you know he's not. But Isaiah is feeling this. Okay, verse 19, he says, We have become like those over whom you have never ruled. It's as if we never knew you. Like those who are not called by your name. Isaiah suddenly becomes the voice of the people who have lost their sanctuary and who have lost the authority of God over their lives. He now completely embodies that. He pours out from a broken heart. We had the temple, Lord, and it's gone now. It was beautiful. Now it's trodden down. It's trodden down. He used that. Our adversaries, verse 18, have trodden it down. Sounds a lot like Jesus' prophecy of Jerusalem, doesn't it? Jesus came along in Matthew 24 and He was going out from the temple, going away when His disciples came out and began to point out the beauty of the temple complex to Jesus. And He said, Do you see all these things? I tell you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And some of us have seen those stones smashed in heaps and piles on the ground below the temple mount. Just as Jesus said, Luke 21-24, Jesus said, And they will fall by the edge of the sword, and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Jerusalem will be trodden down. Isaiah says, The temple, Jerusalem, it was trodden. Your city. You know what's similar about both Jesus' statement and Isaiah's statement? They're both prophecies. They're both very accurate prophecies. Jesus ascended 35 years before His prophecy of the fall of Jerusalem took place in 70 A.D. Isaiah wrote this 100 years before the temple fell the first time, before it was burned down by the Babylonians. He's writing this thing, and you read this and go, wait a minute, when did Isaiah write this? Well, he was dead 100 years before Babylon did this, what he describes here. 
He describes it even more specifically in the next chapter. But stay with this thought. Isaiah has seen so much. From the frightening vision of the Lord's coming to the horror now of the destroyed temple and the devastated land. And so he continues on in verse 1 of 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things which we did not expect, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. For from days of old they have not heard or perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen a God besides you who acts in behalf of the one who waits for Him. Sometimes people today will quote verse 4. And they'll quote it in a way of saying, see the Bible even says, ear has not heard, eye has not seen, so we really can't know what God is doing. The problem with saying that is they didn't read the next verse. Not not in Isaiah. They didn't read the next verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul quotes this, and then in the very next verse... He explains to us that the unheard, unseen mysteries of God, things He's prepared for man, are only revealed to us one way. There's only one way to see the unseen, or to hear the unheard, or to learn of these mysteries. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10, verse 9 is the quote, verse 10 he says, For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Once again, understand, without the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit of the living God, all of God's intentions for us remain a mystery. People say, why don't I understand what God has for my life? Because you're not listening to His Spirit. Because perhaps you've never been born again. If you are born again, you have eyes, ears, minds, hearts that are open to the leading and the teaching of God's own Spirit who knows the heart of God because the Spirit is God. Right? Verse 5 continuing, he says, You meet Him who rejoices in doing righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. That's not, by the way, a perfect person. It's a person who finds joy in doing right things. Who rejoices when the right is done, when the right is accomplished. The person who loves to think about God and to think about the things of the Lord. But brace yourselves here. Because there's God's righteousness and then there's man's righteous mess. Verse 5 continues, Behold, you were angry for we sinned. We continued in them a long time. And shall we be saved? For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on your name, who arouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us, and have delivered us into the power of our iniquities. The power of our iniquities. Moses said in Numbers 32.23, Be sure your sin will find you out. There is power in sin unto death. Sin is not just some random thing that we do. Sin is what captures and lures and brings about death in our lives. And it is a powerful thing, which is why we so badly, desperately need the power of the blood to wash that stuff away. But Isaiah gives three scathing pictures here 
descriptions of the unrighteousness of Israel. And don't get comfortable because we can apply all three of these to our attempts at being righteous. Number one, he says, like one unclean. There, the first part of verse 6. Like one unclean. What's he talking about? A leper. Leprosy. To be unclean in Israel is to have leprosy. Leviticus 13.45 says, As for the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn, the hair of his head shall be uncovered, and he shall cover his mustache and cry, Unclean! Unclean! That's what you are if you have leprosy. And Isaiah says, like a leper. That's, you know, we think we're wearing such righteousness. You know what we are outside of Christ? Lepers. Unclean. Covered with sores. That's what man's righteousness looks like. But it gets worse. Isaiah cries, We are like a filthy garment. Or literally, a filthy rag. What does that mean? I really struggle with how to say this. So let me let Ezekiel explain it. Ezekiel 36.17, he says, Son of man, when the house of Israel was living in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman in her impurity. Can you guess what the filthy rag is? It's that which was used by the woman at that time. And Isaiah, I mean, this is, this is very, very graphic stuff. And Isaiah says, that's your righteousness. That's what it looks like. And he gives a third example. I'm happy to leave the second. A withered leaf. A withered leaf blown by the wind. Because trying to be good and trying to do righteousness is a withering thing. You know, it's exhausting to be good. (laughs) It is tiring to work at righteousness. And, And you've probably known, perhaps you've been at some point in your life, a legalistic follower. You've been a church-going person. You've had to keep the deeds. And you've had to keep up the look. And you've had to maintain some level of goodness because if anyone knew how messed up you really were, it would be bad. You'd be kicked out. It'd be over. And it's a lot of work. And it withers you like a leaf. It just blows you away. And the problem is we just can't seem to do enough to be justifiably righteous. If it's all about your works, you start to discover there's always more work I have to do to get there. I can never get there. And it withers you. And so you wither and you die blown on the wind of your own sin. Or or you can be born again and ride fully alive on the wind of the Holy Spirit. John 3.8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it. You do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Back to the car example. We're riding along and God is driving and we don't know where He's going. doesn't matter. He knows. Where am I going to be in 10 years of my life, Lord? doesn't matter. He knows. All you have to know is that He knows. And once you know that He knows where you're going, you don't have to worry about it. I love that. How freeing. That allows you to ride on the wind and not be blown by the wind of your own sin. Okay, so without Him, I've got to finish up here. We are, we are unclean lepers. We are filthy rags. We are withered leaves. But by His Spirit, again, being born again into a new and a living relationship with Jesus Christ, by His Spirit we become righteous saints. 
decked out for a wedding. As we read before, Isaiah 61 verse 10, He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. See, that's what God provides. We have filthy rags. He has robes of righteousness. And that's what we want to wear. Verse 8, But now, O Lord, You are our Abba. We are the clay, and You are potter. All of us are the work of Your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Behold, now look, all of us are Your people. Your whole... And it's interesting, he's talking plural now. He was saying me and I before now. Suddenly he's, he's very specifically talking as though he's the voice of the people. We are Your people. Verse 10, Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Your holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised You has been burned by fire. And all our precious things have become a ruin, he writes a hundred years before it happened. The first time. Note that, before it happened the first time. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us beyond measure? Now listen, Isaiah sees the burned out temple. This is yet another vision he's had. Okay, The coming of the Lord, the destruction of the land, the burned out temple, and he pleads for mercy. And some believe it's a prophetic cry that he is speaking the voice of the people who would be taken into Babylonian captivity and then ultimately would return. The remnant of Israel tucked away there in Babylon enslaved there for 70 years. But the context doesn't say that. The context tells us something else. When we started out, what did Isaiah see first? The one coming from Basra. He sees the coming of the Lord. What is going on at the time that Jesus returns? Israel is devastated. The temple, the millennial temple, is thrashed. There is burning in Jerusalem, a massive earthquake. The world is burning. And the world is an absolute disaster area. And Jesus comes back. And I said before, Isaiah speaks with the voice of the remnant, but I don't believe it's with the voice of the remnant prophesying 100 years down the line. I believe it's with the voice of the remnant prophesying 2,700 plus years down the line that what we're hearing here, this cry in Isaiah 64, can truly be applied to the remnant of Israel surviving in the tribulation just before the coming of Jesus Christ the King. And Isaiah sees all the way down the line. How's that possible? Well, John saw it. Ezekiel saw it. A number of the prophets did. And these things are not impossible with God. I believe this plea for mercy looks beyond Babylon's destruction, long past Rome's devastation, to the days of the penitent voice of the righteous remnant of Israel. That small group who have come to believe in Jesus, as Zacharias says, that third of Israel that survives sealed in the tribulation, Revelation 7 tells us. And Isaiah speaks their words. Verse 1 of 64, one more time, says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. What's he praying there? Exactly what he saw at the beginning of chapter 63. Oh, that you would come. It's his heart cry. It will be the heart cry of Israel in the tribulation. 
And so how does God respond to that? Chapter 65 is the Lord's answer, and Lord willing, we'll come back to it next week. Let's stand up and pray together. Again, I'll pray first, and I invite you then to just grab one or two other people and respond to the Lord from what you've heard tonight. Let's bow. Father, we praise Your glorious name, for You are the sum total of glory. We praise Your loving kindness and Your compassion, Your mercy, Your grace. We shudder, Lord, at Your judgment, but even this we know to be righteous and true. Father, we thank You that You have given us these words so long ago that describe something that is coming so quickly. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that we will not be afraid, but we will be people who are bold and excited, looking forward to Your coming, knowing that we have not been destined for wrath, but for salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise Your name. All glory to You, our King, our God, our mighty Savior, our Lord, and our Abba. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.